Practical Prepping Podcast. We're helping everyday people become prepared for whatever emergencies come our way. Where gear is good, but knowledge is better, because the more you know, the less you have to carry. We're your hosts, Mark and Krista Lawley. Hello again, everyone. Thank you for joining us on the podcast tonight. We would like to talk about safety rules and safety tips in a broad variety of subjects. The first we want to hit on is the rules of firearms. We were thinking about that because recently we had some podcasts regarding what sort of firearms to purchase and train with, and we want to kind of extend some of that thinking into some of the safety area. So one of the rules of firearms is going to be this. Keep the muzzle pointed in a safe direction. Mark, can you kind of break this down for us? Bottom line is don't point the gun at anything that you're not willing to destroy. Now, that also includes sweeping another person. And by sweeping, the best way I can explain it, if you extended that barrel out for an indefinite distance, like had a stick running out the barrel to an indefinite distance, Do not let that cross another person's body, their arm, their hands, their legs, their body, their head. That's called sweeping. When you sweep across somebody with the muzzle of the gun, do not do that. It can occur when when the weapon's not pointed at the ground when we're turning or we're walking. That gun needs to be either pointed downward or it needs to be pointed upward when we're turning or when we're walking. Good tip. Also, treat every firearm as if it is loaded. Yeah, I've understood over the years that more people have been shot with unloaded guns than they have with loaded guns. So explain how that's possible. It's because people did not clear their weapon. Mm. It's because people thought that their firearm was unloaded when it was actually loaded. Now, here's another thing, and I actually know folks who have gotten caught in this one, And that is that some semi-automatic weapons will not fire when the magazine is out of the weapon, but most will. And I know of someone who was accustomed to a firearm that would not fire if the magazine was out. They dropped the magazine out and they pulled the trigger. Thankfully, it was pointed in a safe direction. All it did was destroy a couple of walls, some sheetrock. But keep that firearm pointed in a safe direction and treat every firearm as if it is loaded. You're also supposed to do this, and this is something that I've been learning and training and more mindful of, and that is to keep that trigger finger off the trigger until you are ready to squeeze, ready to fire the gun. Yeah, keep the trigger finger along the side of the weapon until a sight picture has been acquired. Now, this one was a bit difficult for me to transition to because when I first went through the police academy many, many, many years ago, if we were searching or something, we were at low ready, our finger was through the trigger guard. And it was a little bit of a transition for me to be able to get that finger outside the trigger guard and along the side of the frame of the gun, whether it's revolver or semi-automatic doesn't matter. And just keep that finger off until you have acquired your target, flip the safety, and then press the trigger. So what you're describing is to keep your trigger finger straight along the side of that trigger guard. Exactly. Okay. Also, you need to be sure of your target and 
more importantly, what is behind the target? If you miss or shoot through the target, what are you going to hit? Now, this was instilled in us as kids from the time we started shooting at whatever age. I don't really ever remember not shooting. And it was instilled in us to such a degree that my first cousin turned down a shot at a very nice deer because he wasn't sure where I was, but yet he knew that I often hunted in the hollow that would be behind where that deer was. So he knew he could possibly shoot through it or miss it, which was really not likely for him, but still a possibility. And so he was uncertain of where I was, so he did not take that shot. So be careful. Be sure of what's behind your target as well. It's been said that there are no accidental discharges, just negligent discharges. And that's correct. So here's the scenario. What if you accidentally drop a firearm it's falling through the air toward the floor what should you do there's some controversy on this opinion but this is my opinion and it'll only get you a cup of coffee here unlike a knife which we should never try to catch just let the knife hit the floor some firearms can discharge if they hit at exactly the right angle when being dropped so and and i will admit i have dropped a firearm before And what I did was I put my leg out and more or less kicked that firearm, not tried to kick it across the room, but tried to kick it enough to keep it from hitting the floor flat. I got it to hit the floor at an angle. So whether that actually works every time or not, I'm not sure. But I do know that it worked that time. I hope I never have to try it again. But you can kick that firearm to keep it from hitting flat on the floor or on concrete or wherever. I say this because some weapons can fire when dropped. Now, we talked about this next tip, more for safety, in our last podcast, our two-part series on firearms. And that is discussing the quality holster or gun belt or belly band or the way that you're going to carry your handgun. So talk to us a little bit about why quality holsters and quality gun belts do make that much of a difference. One of the things that we talked about it in the last podcast, I believe, was a quality holster and a quality gun belt are so much more comfortable. In the safety that we're talking about here, not only is it much more comfortable, but it also retains the weapon so much more securely. And what we're talking about when we say a quality holster is not the cheap nylon holsters from the big box stores. It will protect the gun. I mean, you've made an investment in that firearm. You might as well invest in a quality holster, not just buy a cheapie, but invest in a quality holster so it helps protect it and it will protect it from discharge. Now, we talk about a belt. The one that I use and have been wearing this particular belt for 10 or 12 years came from The Beltman, and it's thebeltman.net. They are a company here in Alabama, and they make a tremendously good gun belt that looks like a beautiful dress belt, but it supports that firearm. Okay, so now we're going to make a turn, and we're going to talk about knife tips. Pun intended. We want sharp knife tips. And we want to talk about some knife safety and the way to handle and store 
and maintain a knife in order to keep it safe. So, Mark, give us some of your details on knife tips. Well, number one, a dull knife is a dangerous knife. You know, that's true. I learned that as a cook. I'm not a chef, it is a cook, but a sharp knife is much safer than a dull knife. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're more likely to slip with a dull knife and hurt yourself. The dull knife is not going to give you the cutting results that you're after in your food preparation and certainly in whatever else you're cutting or slicing or separating, you know, out in the field, for example. And a dull knife requires more pressure to make the cut. So if you've got more pressure on it and you slip, you're more apt to cut yourself. Absolutely. So a dull knife is not a safe knife. Keep your knife sharp. Okay, here's a question. So some people think that a knife is a knife is a knife. It's a blade. It's sharp. One is just as good as another for whatever you've got going on. Now, is that true? Can every knife be used in every single case? No, no. Uh, You need to use an appropriate size knife for the job. And an example I've used before is a pen knife is not appropriate for skinning. You know, the little one-inch blade. Right. If you're hunting and you want to skin something, you're not going to use a pen knife. A little pen knife is good for cleaning your fingernails, basically. (laughs) He does that. And it's just not appropriate for skinning. But on the other hand, a Bowie knife, which is what, foot long? That's a knife. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> or one of those in Crocodile Dundee <laughs> when he says, knife. now that's a knife. Yes. Uh, that's not good for carving intricate detail. Right. I mean, a knife like that is going to be used maybe for the skinning or the or the chopping, chopping purposes. Things like that. But a good medium-sized, and, and I say three to five-inch blade is a good EDC. Five is getting a little bit long for me for an EDC knife. Now, I like a five-inch for skinning, but even a good folder, a good folding knife, same thing applies. Use an appropriate size knife for the job. All right, so let's say that you are carving or skinning. In terms of keeping your mind on what you're thinking about and what you're doing, is this the time to start having group conversations with everybody in the family and, and having speakerphone conversations and Zoom meetings and things while you're trying to do carving? Certainly not for me. I have trouble talking into a microphone and running a board at times. <laughs> you know, Chewing gum and walking at the same time can be difficult. But no, this you need to concentrate on what you're doing. And you were talking about the conversations. Those can distract you from what you're doing. And whether you're doing fine, intricate work, whether you're cutting off a hunk of cheese, or whether you're skinning an animal for dinner, you need to concentrate on what you're doing at that time so that you don't wind up cutting yourselves. Hey, listen, I just want to tell you about a couple of books that you need to add to your collection and give as gifts. I highly encourage that you go to Amazon and look up this title, Making Contact During Emergencies. This is information that may save your life or the life of someone you care about. If injured, lost, or found in a disaster or another type of emergency. This book was written by Mark and Krista Lolly. I'm Krista and Mark is my husband. Book number two that we wrote that we're especially proud of and has gotten a lot of buzz is entitled Practical Prepping for Everyday People. This is a common sense guide on preparing for life's emergencies. And when we say practical prepping, we mean the type of emergencies you're going to find yourself in day in and day out. Car emergencies, dead batteries, flat tires, 
storm damage. The roof has gotten blown off. You find that you have no power, no electricity, no devices are working. These kinds of things are happening to somebody somewhere every single day. And we were astonished when we did a little research to find that a vast majority of people found themselves woefully unprepared for one or more of these types of emergencies. And particularly after this COVID year that we've experienced, I think a whole lot more of us are paying closer attention to things like grocery store supply chains, the ability to be able to buy gas, the ability to be able to move freely about, or what's going to happen if we do have to stay home for three weeks solid. Practical Prepping for Everyday People by Mark and Crystal Lolly, also making contact during emergencies. Go to Amazon, look these up, add these to your collection. We sure appreciate it. So now we want to talk about some safety usage of knives. I want you to talk for a little bit about keeping the knife clean and also I want you to touch on the cross-contamination situation. You're probably better able to address this than I am, but keep your knife clean especially keep the handle from having slippery things on it. Maybe like oil and grease and things like that. And if you're skinning an animal, the blood on your hand, Mm. that becomes very slippery. And it's hard to clean a deer or any other animal without getting some blood on your hands. But that knife, if if it's covered with slick blood, it can slip. Mm. Now, the cross-contamination really is more for kitchen things and you may want to address this i mean i know you don't cut raw chicken and then go over and slice the cooked steak well that's exactly what that means cross-contamination happens when you use one tool and then use that same tool across for something else and it's just like you said if you are carving raw meats fish beef chicken turkey poultry pork what have you Before you cook these things, there are going to be the presence of some bacteria that you would rather not ingest. So if you're carving with your your meats, pick up a different knife to chop up your vegetables and fruits and breads and things like that so that you're not applying some of that harmful bacteria to some of those raw foods that you may eat raw. So be very careful with your knife usage in a kitchen setting or a skinning out in the woods setting. Do not use the same knife to cut raw meat as you would other foods. Or at least clean it between. And I also learned a safety tip is that when you are cutting or chopping, angle the knife blade away from you and down. Mm -hmm. Instead of don't carve towards you. If you were to slip, you might run that knife blade into your arm or your side or something. So cut away from you. That's the safe direction. Yeah, I've got a nice little scar right there where I did not observe that safety rule as a kid, about 14 years old. And and I slipped and I cut a pretty good chunk out of that finger. Still have a scar, huh? Still have the scar. Hmm, But we were taught as kids when we were being taught very young, my grandfather primarily and He passed away. I was about 12, so go back to about eight or nine years old when he would let us sit and whittle with his Mm -hmm. knife. And he taught us to always cut away from us. Of course, what we were doing, the only thing we really could do was sharpen a stick. (laughs) There there was no carving or anything like that. And as we got older, we were a little more careful doing other things. But if you're cutting rope, if you're cutting any type of line or stick or something, Cut away from you rather than cutting toward your body. 
Also, the same, same question when it comes to the accidental dropping of a knife. Should you try to catch it? This one's where you let it go. If you try to stick your foot out there, it's going to be like bread with peanut butter on it dropped off the table. It's going to hit with a downside. You know, it's going to put the peanut butter on the floor. This is going to put the point down if you stick your leg out. I mean, it's just Murphy's Law. It's going to be there. You stand a big chance of hurting yourself if you attempt to catch a falling knife. Just let it fall, pick it up, wash it off, go back to what you were doing. Talk to me a little bit about knife storage. Knife storage. Let's go back and um, I got, we got this tip from Jim Curtis when we're talking about oiling our knives. Now, a lot of people use, and we're going to do a knife sharpening episode here coming up pretty soon, but a lot of people use something like rim oil or Marvel Mystery oil or gun oil or three-in-one, something like that, to oil their blade up after they sharpen it. And after you use your knife, you need to clean it, make sure it is sanitary, and then cover it with some oil. If it's Unless it's a stainless steel knife, there's a very good possibility it can rust if it doesn't get used. And so if you'll cover that with a light vegetable oil, and I use just whatever you happen to have up in the cabinet. Well, I've oiled mine with canola oil. I've oiled it with olive oil. Just any. Talking about a cooking oil. Exactly, a cooking oil. And Jim says that if you'll use cooking oil, your apple will taste better than if you use <laughs> gun oil. That's and a very so, good tip. Yes, if it's, yeah, that, that machine oil wouldn't taste very good. Now, if you're talking kitchen knives here, have a dedicated drawer for your knife or have a block to store your knives in. I know here you have one drawer that is nothing but knives. Mm-hmm. I have a knife drawer. And that way, when we're digging around for something else, we're not sticking ourselves on those knives. And another thing I'll throw in here, too, when you put them in the, refri- uh, put them in the refrigerator, <laughs> when you put them in the dishwasher, put them in point down. You'd be surprised how many people don't know to do that. And then they reach into the darkness of their dishwasher and get jabbed exactly. you know, with their knife. Exactly. So blade that down. Thing down. Blade down. If you are carrying a fixed blade, the safest place for that knife is in its sheath. So don't just leave that thing laying around if you're not using it for the next little while. Anything can happen. So put that thing back in its sheath. And if it's a folding knife, after you've cleaned it up, oiled it up, folded it up, and put it where it needs to be. All right, let's jump to another topic. Let's talk about refueling generators and small engines. I want Mark to talk about this for a moment, then I'm going to share a personal story right quick. Yeah, this is where you want to let that engine cool down for 20 minutes or so before refueling it, unless that tank is considerable distance away from the engine. The problem here is if you are pouring gasoline, refilling it, overfill the tank, and it runs down on that hot engine, it can catch on fire. It's amazing how many times I have heard calls during the summertime that the fire department gets a call that the lawnmower is on fire. And I can almost guarantee you that they set it on fire during refueling. So So what do you suggest if your lawnmower your weed eater or your small, your generator, whatever needs gas put in it, and you've been using it for an hour, so it's hot. What do you suggest we do in order to refuel it? Well, that's a good time to 
take a break, get a bottle of water, and just let that thing cool down some. But be aware that that spillage can ignite. The personal story that I want to share, and of course I'm going to leave out the details and just do the highlights that I know of someone who was on their riding mower and was mowing their grass and the rest of the family was off on a Saturday morning doing fun stuff and the dad was at home doing the mowing and he refueled a hot riding mower and it exploded Mm -hmm. and he lost his life. It was a tragic experience someone in our neighborhood and I've just never forgotten it's the first time I had heard about someone refueling a riding mower and it was I mean it had just that moment run out of gas so you know that motor Mm was roaring hot and he just he just thought it was going to be a safe thing and and just never realized just what could happen wouldn't take but just one misplaced drop of fuel yeah, and, and, and we paid the price. We've all done it accidentally, not thinking, and we think, well, I'll just be real careful with it, and I won't overfill it. And next thing we know, we've got gas running down the tank. All right, let's talk about a silent killer. The silent killer, often referred to as carbon monoxide. So, how do we, if we can't see it, smell it, or taste it, how do we fight it? Well, one, you have a carbon monoxide detector. Which reminds me, I need to put a battery, a new battery in our carbon monoxide detector that's right there. I'll do that mm-hmm. when we get through podcasting tonight. Good deal. But you need to have that carbon monoxide detector. And that's not just for open flame if you're running it in the house. Now, we have Mr. Heater Big Buddy as a backup heat for here. We have a fireplace that we can use for backup heat. And those are times that it's obvious that you have a carbon monoxide detector. But if you have gas heat, which we do on one end of our house, we have gas heat here, you can have a cracked combustion chamber inside that unit, not know it, and it can be putting carbon monoxide into the airflow that comes into your house. Uh-huh. So you need to have that carbon monoxide detector. And then here's some of your pet peeves that you talk about quite often. And we always shake our heads when somebody dies from this after hurricanes, tornadoes, snowstorms, ice storms. I think what you're referring to is when people bring the outdoor grill or an outdoor generator into the dwelling and run it and it builds up carbon monoxide Mm -hmm. because neither of those things are intended to be used indoors. Exactly. Even inside the garage. Even inside a tent. Well, that's... That has actually happened, too. There was a famous situation in Charlotte one time where some campers that had come to a race, and it was a little bit cool that night, and they were tent camping. They dragged their little grill inside their tent, and they found them two in the tent dead the next day. Mm -hmm. Carbon monoxide. It happens. So do not use that grill or that generator indoors. We talk about using approved or indoor approved propane heaters. And they will say on the box, they will say on the label that they are ventless or they are indoor safe. Many are not. The big double burners that looks like two eyes coming at you, you mount it on the top of the barbecue-sized tank. Yes. Those are intended for outdoors. They put out a lot of heat. 
We have family members that use them in their job while working outdoors. Those, what do they call them, salamander-type heat? It's the construction. Yeah, salamander heaters. The, mm-hmm. the construction site heaters, a lot of shop heaters, those that mount onto the tank themselves, those are usually not indoor safe. So don't plan on using one of those inside the house during a power failure or during a heat outage and expect to live through it. All right. Let's turn over here to fire safety. I know that every year people think about fire drills and fire safety and fire prevention, but time after time after time, we either hear stories of house fires. There was one on the news here in North Alabama just last night, Mm -hmm. a tragic fire in a home. And then, of course, there's also wildfires. But let's get back to about fire safety in the home. Let's talk about that for a minute. Well, just as important as a carbon monoxide detector is for your house, so is a smoke detector and a fire extinguisher. We go back to the episode where we had the fire chief, Tim Kuzieski, and that's one of the things that he pointed out. And he talked about the, the new house that he had built. The code required eight smoke detectors throughout that house. So you really need one in every bedroom. And it's good to have those pre-wired so that you don't have to worry about any kind of power outage on the batteries on those things. But we have battery operated here, and we really probably need to add a couple more than we have here. But we have those space throughout the house. But you need those smoke detectors, and you also need a fire extinguisher. And one of the things that Chief Kuzieski pointed out was don't have it very near your stove, but have it some feet away because if the stove's on fire, it may be too hot to reach your smoke detector. Exactly. Your fire extinguisher. Your fire extinguisher. I'll get it right. See what I mean? I can't talk and run a board at the same time. Then when you start looking at fireplaces, you need to put fire screens in front of those things. You ever been in a house and they have a fireplace and the carpet out about a foot from that fireplace, you see a burn spot. Yeah, yes. That that wood <laughs> pops out. It I mean, will. It crackles and it, it'll it it'll launch. It it crackles and mm-hmm. it pops, and <laughs> so you need that fire screen. That fire screen won't affect any of the heat going through. It, it'll all get through. You can still see that pretty fire in there, but it will keep that hot embers from popping out and setting other things on fire. And here's the real danger with that. If you see it pop out, you can deal with it now. But what if it pops out and lays there and smolders till after you've gone to bed? Yeah. So you need that fire screen and you need that smoke detector. While you're talking about a fireplace, it just caused me to think. Another safety tip is before you use your fireplace, you need to make sure that the flues and the damper Mm -hmm. and the creosote has been dealt with. You really ought to invest in a professional chimney cleaning. Many, many, many house fires begin in the fireplace. And it's a, it comes as a very sad surprise to the family that survives that house fire because the fireplace is supposed to be the safe place to build mm-hmm. the fire. But come to find out, the chimney can be in terrible, terrible trouble. So get your chimney professionally inspected and cleaned before you use it and get on a program where it is done regularly. Right. And, and it doesn't have to be done every year, but it needs to be done regularly. 
and talking about the fireplace there, use the right kind of wood. We've got southern pine all over the place down here, and that's probably one of the absolute worst woods that you could burn in a fireplace. And why is that? Well, it has so much creosote in it that it sticks to the inside of that flue going up. It's almost like sap syrup, isn't it? Right, and at some point, it's going to catch on fire. It, It will. And when it does, it makes a roar, and it's blowing fire all the way out the top, and That was one of the first fire calls that I went on as a young firefighter was that the chimney had caught on fire. Now, who thinks of a chimney (laughs) catching on fire? Well, it was all inside, and it sounded like a jet engine with that fire roaring up through because it's got plenty of air coming in from the bottom, plenty of place to go out the top. And so that thing was blowing fire. So it was like a flamethrower. Exactly. Exactly. And it was throwing fire two or three feet out the top of that chimney. So all we really could do at that point in time was wet the roof down and stand by and let the thing burn out. Wow. That that's probably the best thing, or at least what we knew to do at the time. Now here's one. We saw a sad situation on this a few years ago. There were some folks that had a bonfire, and it had begun to die down some, and they wanted to build it back up. So they took about a quart of gasoline and threw it on the fire. And they wound up flying a couple of the folks out to the hospital. I think there were four that got pretty badly burned. Two very badly. And, in fact, they were in critical condition for some time. Because that will explode. It's not the liquid gasoline that ignites. It's the vapor. Exactly. And when you toss gasoline, you're actually get some of it becomes airborne in a vapor form. And that's what ignites. And it's heavier than air. And yes. so those gasoline vapors can be down around your feet and you don't know it. Same thing happens when you're filling your gas tank with gasoline. As you put liquid into that tank, air is coming out of that tank. It has gas fumes in it, and it will drop down to ground level, and that vapor can pool around you. That's why they, you shouldn't be smoking cigarettes, exactly. gas pop, or, or even static sparks. You, know, you right. just want to avoid any kind of that ignition mm-hmm. of that vapor. So those are just some of the things that you want to look out there. Now, a lot of us have like a fire pit. Ours is a freestanding fire pit. Yes, we can actually pick it up and move it around. Right. It's a big copper it, pot. That's what we do for cutting <laughs> grass. We move it. Yeah. And <laughs> right. it's easier than weed eating around it. But now one of our daughters and their family has a permanent fire pit that is made with concrete Pavers blocks. Pavers, yeah. Uh-huh. They're, they're landscape pavers, and they have made a fire ring, and it's about two feet high, and it's about three foot across, and that's where they roast marshmallows, and they have, you know, the, the boys can build fires there. But now you need to ring that fire area. Don't just scratch out an area and say, this is my fire area, and build a fire on the ground. Build you a fire pit. Have a safe place. Keeps those embers from popping out to the side. Keep the area around it clear of debris. And just think about that ahead of time. What can go wrong? Now, we burn a lot of stuff here, and one of us is always standing by with something that we can deal with that fire if we need to. And there's a hose pipe very close by as well if we have to. You're such a southern guy to say hose pipe. 
Water that is hose. such a southern thing. Water hose. I like it. <laughs> what, what, what do you call it? Faucet extender? Garden hose. Yeah. Hose pipe. Love it's it. that thing you screw on to the faucet <laughs> and you can stretch it out yonder and have water coming out. <laughs> yonder. Yonder. That's, oh, a, that's another you. good old southern Bear word. Bear with us, listeners. I know you're listening from all over the world, but we are, such, we are southern, born and bred down to the bone. And I'm about as country as a turnip green. <laughs> all right. Let's talk about some electrical safety Recently, there have been some hurricanes and tornadoes and thunderstorms. Most of those are always characterized by high winds and wind damage. And invariably, telephone poles are going to fall Mm -hmm. over. Electrical line holders are going to fall over. So let's say you're walking around or you're driving around and you come upon a downed power line. What do you do? Or more so, it passes and you come out of the house. Exactly. You come out of the house and, you know, curiosity, we just want to walk the neighborhood, make sure the neighbors are okay, see what kind of damage we have in the neighborhood. And if it's at night and you're walking along, there may be a live power line laying there on the ground. You step on it, we have to send you flowers or send flowers to your family. I think what he's trying to say is avoid all downed power lines. Treat them as if they were live, active, and able to electrocute you. You don't know. Even people that work for the utility company would not just reach down and grab Mm -hmm. it or step on it because they know these lines can be very unstable and they might be operating in such a way that you just You don't know. You don't want to take a chance. No, let me tell you another one, too. And this just comes from experience of my job. A lot of times cars take down phone poles. That's true. Take down power poles. A lot of times people will have a power outage in one neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Come to find out it was from a car accident. One car hit a pole. And, I mean, we see it every week that we have to call the power company to come put a pole back up or a line back up. But let me give you this tip right here, too. You come up on a traffic accident, and you get out to go see if you can help, and you notice that there is a power line draped across that car. Do not touch that car. If you touch that car, you just grounded it between you and the ground. See, while it's sitting there, it doesn't hurt the people that's inside because there's no electricity going through them, and it's it's insulated from the ground with the rubber tires. But the moment you touch that car... If that's a live power line laying on it, you're in danger. You may be dead. So the best thing to do there is to back off. Don't touch it. Advise whoever's in that car not to get out and wait for professional help to get there. The fire department has ways that they can move that line and do things, even if it is live. Now, you mentioned hurricanes a while ago and tornadoes. Let's mention something here that gets people killed. And that's backfeeding your house from your generator. Now, the way you backfeed one is you plug your generator into your power circuits. And there's several ways to do that, but we're not going to go into that now. But what happens when you plug that into the circuit and you don't kill that main breaker is not only does it put power into your house, but it puts power out into the lines in the neighborhood. Oh, So somebody comes along, power man knows that that fuse is pulled, it's supposed to be dead, but it has power coming from your generator. You may kill a line worker. 
So back feeding can be very dangerous. The safe way to do that and the way we're going to do that here is call an electrician, have the electrician come in, wire it, and put in a transfer switch so you have either or. You cannot have both at the same time. You can run on commercial power or you can run on generator, but there's no chance of backfeeding that electricity into the power lines. Okay, what about uh, live power lines and bodies of water? They don't mix very well. Don't be playing with electricity while you're standing in water. Or in a lake or a pool well, or yes. water, just water. Well, you know. the situations that we're going to be in is it's been raining. It is raining. We've had a tornado come through, and we've got water falling all over the place, and we're hooking up the generator, and we're running extension cords into the house. We need to make sure that extension cord plug is not laying in water. We need to make sure we're not standing in water and using wet hands to plug two extension cords together because that water and that electricity they don't go well together. And we really learned that in science class, but some of us may have forgotten over well, the years about water been, and electricity. That was in the last century that we went to school. So. <laughs> that's true, back in the 20th. Yeah, so it's that's a long time ago, but that's one that we need to particularly pay attention to. All right, so all of this talk about storms makes me think about storm safety. Well, talk to us about it. Well, you know, just because we're getting into the autumn of the year does not mean that wild weather is taking a holiday. In fact, some of the most deadly and devastating tornadoes that have ever struck North Alabama have been between October and February, Mm -hmm. which is the dead of winter. So we have to think about storm safety. And I want you to sort of give us a list of, again, some of this is repeated information, but we feel like learning comes from repetition. And we want to continue to drive home how important it is to have storm safety equipment and knowledge. Well, what's the first thing that we need to do with that? We need to have an NOAA weather radio. They call it NOAA. Weather radio that can work on electrical power or battery backup power. You can have it programmed. You can program it yourself. A lot of times places where you buy them will help you with the programming. It's simple to do. And you look up the code and most places is a five-digit code. And you just bring up the menu and you put those codes in. And you can, like ours over here, right back here behind us right now, it's not programmed with just our county but it is programmed with the county that is normally the county before us that storms come into. So generally to our west. It gives us a little bit of advance notice. If they're getting a warning, we may be getting a warning here in a few minutes. That's very good advice because that helps you think a little more outside of your own tight little mm-hmm. box. It's If you live in, I'll just make it up, if you live in Humboldt County somewhere in some state or a province somewhere, program your weather radio for more vicinity around you. You might even think about even as much as a 75-mile radius in order to give you time to know and understand the wild weather that may be coming your way. Let me give you a good example here. When our oldest granddaughter was going to college in Mobile, Alabama, she went to University of South Alabama. Now, Mobile is not far off of the state line. It's in the western portion, the southwestern portion of the state, and it's not that far off of the county line. 
The state line. What state? The Alabama oh. state line. <laughs> I was trying to figure out what state you were talking about. Yeah. It's it's very close to the Alabama Mississippi state line. Okay, Alabama Mississippi. Right, I got you. So yes. with my granddaughter in Mobile, Alabama, and knowing that you know she's a busy college student and who knows where she might be at that time, if it waited for Mobile County warning to come out, it may be a very short time period that she would have. So I watched weather all the way back to Biloxi, Mississippi. I wanted a lot of warning, and I would be able to give her a lot of warning so that she could get to a safe place. And she lived in a very sturdy dorm, and it was basically concrete apartments is what it was. And so she had a very safe place to be. If she was in class then I would text her and she could actually go to the lowest level of that particular building that her class was in. And so she would be safe. And we did that by, and we did it several times, by watching the weather 50 miles away. So program that radio to give you a county advance notice, if that makes sense. Another thing, when they put up the weather maps and uh, they're showing you the warning, they use they, they no longer warn just for the county. If you look at the map, there's a polygon. Yeah, and, like a lot of times on the local TV, they right. do what they call wall-to-wall broadcasting. Right, and, and that has saved many lives. It's gotten many a broadcast meteorologist chewed out because there's somebody's story got interrupted. Somebody's TV program. Yeah, somebody's TV program got interrupted, and they weren't affected, so they thought their program ought to be owned, but... Those meteorologists, they save lives. They go on to the air, and some of them are on the air for many hours when we've got these major outbreaks. And that polygon shows where that storm could go. And it's not a straight line because as it moves, it can jog north, south, east, west, whatever. So respect that polygon. If you are in that polygon, take action. They mean that. Go to your safe place. Monitor the weather, but get in a safe place. Now, a, sa- a, a place that is not safe is a camper or a mobile home. Mm-hmm. There's absolutely no mobile home or camper that's built that is considered safe to ride out a tornado or a hurricane in. No, I've been to many, many disaster scenes after tornadoes. The only thing that left there was the frame of the mobile home. Yeah, maybe just the the lot with the dead grass from where it stood. And a steel frame. Everything else was blown away. So if you can, find out. And don't wait for the tornado warning to come before you figure out where the community uh, emergency shelter is. Yeah, do that tomorrow. You need to do – this is what practical prepping is all about – Getting prepared before the emergency comes so that when the emergency comes, and it may not be today and it may not be tomorrow. But it will be. It will happen. Know where your emergency shelters in your county are. A lot of churches will open if they've got basements. Some of the schools, you know, they have storm preparation. Know and and form a plan. Form a plan from your house. Form a plan from your place of work, from your place of worship, from the shopping centers that you frequent. Just begin to think, where would be the safe place I'd need to go if I literally had 60 seconds to Mm -hmm. make a move? 
And a lot of courthouse basements are available during certain situations, tornado warnings and things. A lot of times the county will open those up and let people come and get into the basement for safety. If you've got questions and you're just really not clear or very sure about how to find out about the emergency shelters that are available, every county has an emergency management agency. A group of persons that have come together to monitor and broadcast and forewarn and then also take care of some situations after the storm's effect. Contact those people and let them guide you as to where the safe places are. Yeah, just call them up and say, look, I live at this location. Where is a safe place I can go? Is there a community shelter? Where can I go? in case of a tornado warning, and they'll give you that information. They'll usually give you several places that you can go. Now let's talk for just a moment about us as individuals, our own personal safety. Well, when it comes to my personal safety, the biggest thing I can do is mind you. (laughs) That's the truth. Yeah, you'll stay safe and well as long as you mind me. We're talking about a six-foot redhead over here, folks. (laughs) uh, Better be nice. Yeah, so, that and that, segues into this is situational awareness. Mm -hmm. You know, am am I talking to you within arm's reach or am I across the room? But situational awareness in in all seriousness, this is what can keep us out of trouble. A lot of people get in trouble because they're not aware of their surroundings, aware of what's going on and aware of just something as simple as knowing where the exits are when you're sitting in a restaurant. You know, and we have found that the more modern day uh, persons, and this isn't just young people, it's older people as well. I'm seeing people with their nose down, stuck in their phone, and they're walking while they're texting, they're they're talking, they're looking at a screen, they're not aware of anyone around them, and a lot of times they're not aware of that mall fountain they're about to run into. And Some people have gone right over the little low wall and mm-hmm. right into the water because they were not being situationally aware. Yeah, well, you know, it's one thing if you fall over in the fountain and get wet. It's another thing if you let somebody sneak up on you and mug you from behind. Yeah, that's that's a completely different thing. In personal safety, you want to look at something in the way of personal protection. Now, we realize that not all countries, not all states, not all cities allow people to carry firearms. But that is a very good way for personal protection if you are allowed to carry it legally and you get some training and know how to use it, know when you can use it and when you can't, how to react and what to do. It's a very, very effective self-defense tool. Knives are also some places that cannot carry a firearm are allowed to carry a knife. Now, we realize some places you can't carry a knife either, but let's say you can. A knife is a very effective weapon if you learn a little bit about what you're doing, and it really doesn't matter if it's a folding knife or if it is a fixed blade, but Jim Curtis calls it a life knife, and it needs to be accessible with either hand. Also something for personal safety is having a flashlight and get the kind that has a strobing feature. The strobing flashlight has been effective and actually tested and has been proven to disable or disorient a would-be attacker. 
it has been proven in many, many cases that it is the difference between someone following through with an attack and someone being able to get away from an attacker. Right. It may just disorient for two or three or four or five seconds, but that's really about all you need to make an exit, to, to be getting away from the problem. Also, self-defense classes. I was in college many years ago, and one of my physical education courses that I probably enjoyed the most of all was a self-defense class, and I learned so many interesting and, and actual easy techniques to use as a female. I could disable and disarm and really defend myself against an attacker that weighs 150 pounds more than me and might be a foot taller. There are some formidable things that you can learn to do that will help you in hand-to-hand combat in order to save your life. If you're in a fight for your life, there are no rules except survive. Exactly. And it doesn't matter if you're poking fingers in eyes or you're biting people. It doesn't matter. The whole idea there is to stay alive and be alive when this is over. Talk a little bit about some other weapons that we could use that could be some type of improvised weapon or something if we're not allowed to carry a gun or a knife. There are some personal-sized pepper spray devices. I have seen people put these on their keychains. I've seen them have them in their hand when they're doing their morning walk. And that's basically in case they encounter, for example, a stray dog or mm-hmm. maybe a dangerous dog, and they don't want to kill the dog, but they definitely want it to keep its distance. So pepper spray is one of those very effective weapons that is available for purchase in a lot of places, and I, I advise both men and women to think about pepper spray. Now, it comes in three forms. You can have a one that shoots out a stream, one that shoots out foam, and one that shoots out a mist. Now, the problem with pepper spray is that, if, especially if it's a mist, is you're very likely to get it on you. Because you're using it in close, you know, close Very possible that you're going to get that on you. But the one with the stream, they don't have to be as close, and it will, unless the wind's blowing right back in your face, but if you spray it and move, spray it and move away, you're pretty well going to avoid that. Now, they've come out with one that is a colored spray. And if you spray an attacker in the face and you say, well, I sprayed him with orange pepper spray, and then a guy is found by the police and his face is orange and his eyes are red, pretty well got your suspect right there. So it's good for identification of subjects after the fact. This next one you've never heard of, have you? Um, no, I haven't. I'm looking down here on the list, and it says monkey fist key ring. Now, I'm very curious about this term. You've seen them. You didn't know what it was at the time. Most of them are made of paracord, and it has a great big steel ball bearing in the end. And that paracord is woven all around that steel ball bearing. And then you have something like six inches of keychain on there. So it's just this big knob on the end of a paracord keychain. But down inside that knob is a big, heavy steel ball. A steel ball. Well, that can be that can that can really pop a knot on somebody's head. Exactly, and that's the idea. It, it's an innocent-looking keychain, but you come out of the store at night, and you've got that thing in your hand, and you're holding the keys, not the ball. Yeah. You're holding the keys. And part of the paracord keychain, and somebody comes up, you just swing that thing. 
and that's a formidable weapon. Yikes. I mean, you're, you're talking an ounce and a half of lead or steel in the end of that thing, and paracord doesn't cushion very much when it hits. So that's a, a good thing, a monkey fist key ring. Look that up. I will. Now, this next one, a lot of folks are not allowed to carry these, and I'll be honest, I don't know about Alabama state law. I'll have to look this up tomorrow, but that's to carry a taser. You can purchase a taser. Now, realize they're not the end-all of everything. We find that they're totally effective only about 50% of the time. So you have to hit them right. Everything has to be right. But you can also get a stun gun. And that taser, you can shoot them out there. Stun gun, you have to be close range. You have to be able to put that against skin. Uh But it is a very effective weapon. If you are allowed to carry one in your location. Yes, we always advocate that you read, study, and abide by the laws mm-hmm. of your particular vicinity. Right. You don't want to go to jail because you're carrying the wrong thing for your own personal protection. Exactly. Carabiner knuckles. Brass knuckles are illegal in most areas. You usually, only, the only time I've ever seen them in my life is in the movies. But I know that they do exist. I mean, brass knuckles. There's a set in the drawer back there. Ooh, so you've got brass knuckles, huh? I've got brass knuckles. Hey, now. Now, they were actually carried by a police officer in the 30s and 40s. And oh. I knew his daughter, and she gave me a number of things after he had passed away. I've never carried them. You, you can't carry those in most every jurisdiction. But you can carry a keychain. There's a lot of these carabiners that are big enough to be able to slide four fingers through. You can put that on your fingers, slide your fingers through there, and it effectively becomes brass knuckles. Oh, so it's hardware on your hand, basically. Hardware on your hand. I gotcha. Now, this next one, good thing to have, we're talking about a tactical pen. In all honesty, these pens are made to defend yourself, and it's got a very hard tip. You can write with it, but they're made for stabbing. It's a self-defense weapon for stabbing. But in all honesty, any pen would do this. What you're describing is something that looks like a writing pen, P-E-N pen, but it has more features to it than just the normal writing pen. Well, it has a stronger tip. I see. That's the idea. Like for a puncture. For puncture. It's made out of aluminum or steel, and it will do a very effective job. And if it says tactical on it, you know that the FAA will not let you get on the airplane with a tactical pen. No kidding. But you can get on the airplane with a pen. So, so just I mean, get you another metal pen that doesn't look tactical, tactical. or yeah. have the word tactical on it. Got it. It's a last-ditch effort, but if it comes to stabbing somebody to save your own life, go for it. So this is just a brief list of some of the safety rules and tips regarding firearms and knives, refueling small engines, carbon monoxide, fire safety, electrical safety, storm safety, and last but not least, personal safety, because we want you to take care of yourself. We want you to be in good shape if you have to take care of others for whom you are responsible. And we'll see you next time. We hope you've enjoyed the podcast today. Hopefully you've learned something, picked up a tip, or something we said may have triggered a thought that will help you in your prepping journey.
If you haven't already, go ahead and click that subscribe button so you'll never miss an episode and share it with your friends and family. And remember, stuff happens. Stay prepared.